Welcome to another episode of Knife Making Down Under podcast. Today we have uh, a few special guests with us. We have Kyle and Josh Royer from America. They've come all the way over here to participate in our symposium and Kyle to run a masterclass on making some mosaic steel. And in with you guys as well, I believe, is a certain Australian legend in there called Wayne Saunders. So welcome. Thanks, Kev. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Yeah. How you going, Corin? I'm all right, mate. I've got all the guys here sitting around. We've got cables running everywhere. Joshua's using all his technological abilities to uh, to set up all of the, the wires where they need to go. And he's checking all our sound levels. And that's, it's really good having someone half professional in our podcast for a change. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of technical and not being on the podcast, we have to... Uh, Say, uh, you know, sorry for Mert not being with us at the moment today. Had an emergency from the sound of the last conversation and had to take his dog to the vet. Uh, we'll get that story later. But, yeah, Mert is unfortunately not with us today. No good for him, really, I guess. I've also got Paul Aristar currently up in my workshop mucking around on a couple of his folding knives as well. So we'll see if Paul can get in here afterwards and say two bobs worth. So, um, Josh and Kyle, how have you guys enjoyed your stay so far in Australia? It's been absolutely amazing so far. Uh, we got to see Sydney the first day we were here and uh, go up on the pillar on a bridge there and just see an amazing 360-degree view and eat the best food ever. I We had some seafood that was hands down the best seafood I've ever had anywhere, and it was a great view of the ocean right next to us. And today we forged a hammer. Keith Flutter came over, and we forged two hammers. He forged one, and uh, Corin showed us how to do them. And that was tons of fun. And mine came out super cool. I'm going to take it home and use it so hard and replace that junky Lowe's hammer I had. And uh, we've even seen kangaroos. And yeah, Josh. Wild kangaroo. That was actually quite an adventure. We were searching quite a while. We went down in this valley twice trying to find some kangaroo wild. We couldn't until we were coming on the way home from one of the valleys. And Corin thought he saw a kangaroo. So we turned around. And we're looking, and sure enough, there's kangaroo there, and we got to see wild kangaroo, and uh, corn's day was made. Well, it was kind of like this, Kev. <laughs> You're taking two people out, you know, and you want to show them kangaroos in the wild. Like, it's well and good to show them one in a zoo, but they're everywhere, right? They're like rabbits, so you should be able to find one in the wild. And so it was that I took these guys down to a place called Euroka Clearing, where there is a mob of kangaroos. It was kind of a funny story. We drove down there at the beginning of the day in the morning when you're most likely to see them. But unfortunately, we couldn't find this mob of kangaroos. So then I took them out to see some lookouts and you couldn't see like 30 meters off the lookout. You couldn't see anything. All you did was stood on the edge of a cliff and looked at white. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was terrible. So I then took them up deep into the mountains and did a walk down to a canyon and and a waterfall and things which we all got wet and cold. And but that was pretty good. And I'd been telling them about huntsman spiders and of course, they hadn't seen any, so it wasn't until we went and had uh, a cup of tea at, at, a, at a restaurant, and the huntsman spiders were running around the walls of the restaurant, so they got to see huntsmans. Oh, that was cool. They're so big. And and don't let them downplay the whole waterfall thing. That was an amazing, amazing adventure. We got to go down like a million steps and, and see this cool waterfall with people rappelling down it, and, and then work our way back up and have a good lunch. Yeah, and we even found naturally grown rail... Rail, railroad? 
Railway Trek. Yeah. Ra- yeah. Railway yeah. Trek. What, what's the name of the full-grown one again? Oh, Railway <laughs> Trek, yes. Don't worry. There's a video coming out. The <laughs> listeners will probably see it by the time I get this edited and out. But, um, yeah, they... <laughs> Just put it this way, this blacksmiths can find, if, if you want to get into blacksmithing, you can find everything you need if you look hard enough in the bush. <laughs> well, my first ever forge was actually all built out of bits I scrounge out of the state forest, out of the bush. So. Out of the bush. Wow. And, and probably fired off charcoal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there's, there's nothing stopping you. So that was pretty good. I took them back to Euroka Clearing, which is the clearing they mentioned. There was no kangaroos there, and this there was someone there was something like a kangaroo. This French guy tried to jump in my car. <laughs> that was a little bit, a little bit strange. Very um, weird. Very weird. Yeah, he just said he got me to wind my window down. And said, "Do you know where the kangaroos are? Take me to the kangaroos." And I said, uh, "I don't know where they are, and I've got guests, so I'm sorry, but you know, you were right, sort of thing." And he was, "Oh, you've got two free spe- seats. My friend and I will get in." And I said, no. (laughs) And kept driving. So he might still be there. We're not sure. (laughs) But anyway, uh, so that was that. And then, yeah, as we're coming back over Razorback Range, um, we saw uh, I saw a mob of kangaroos. I thought, oh, that that looks like a stump, but it could be a roo. So I turned around. Sure enough, there was a there was a mob of roos up there, and we got to show them some kangaroos. So. We kind of ticked a few boxes, but it wasn't the normal sightseeing tour we do. The weather's just not there for us. Yeah, it's a bit bit of a shame about the weather. Um, you guys didn't get to the best of everything that we could have taken you out to, but I take my dog for a walk like two minutes from my house and there's kangaroos everywhere all the time. So it's funny that like the one time you want to see them, they're not there. Yeah, that's how yeah. it goes. <laughs> if you keep your eye out when you're driving down from sydney to canberra you'll see about 500 of them they'll be sleeping on the side of the road oh wow sleeping on the side of the road <laughs> shit kev <laughs> <laughs> they're dead boys they're yeah, dead they're yeah, looking at me that's what i figured well you know they might have they might have been you know good on you kev thinking about the poor kangaroos and <laughs> just trying to ease them into it, you know? it's it's just a shame you couldn't you couldn't see his face then <laughs> kyle's <laughs> i don't know if he i don't know if he thinks you're serious or if he thinks you're taking the piss or if he knows what taking the piss means i i just thought sleeping meant that they were just chilling next to the road i don't yeah. know <laughs> yeah unfortunately unfortunately we lose a lot of uh, a lot of kangaroos to roadkill so yeah yes but there's an awful lot of them. Yeah, more troublesome than deer. Have you ever hit a kangaroo, Corin? Uh, no, but my father's written his car off on a kangaroo. So, oh, yeah. boy. Oh, yeah, I might have done. Oh, no, I hit it. No, I, know I have. Yeah, you would have. Yeah. yeah? Did you eat it? Did I eat it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I've, I go out hunting them if I want them. So they're nice <laughs> and fresh. I don't want them all bruised. <laughs> well, guys, Kyle, let's start with you. How did you get into knife making? Oh, boy. I was about 14 years old. And I was in a homeschooling 4-H group, and we were looking for a really unique project that I could do because we had farm animals at the time, but I absolutely hated the farm animals. We had goats and chickens and pigs and stuff, but the goats were the main one because it was my job to keep the goats on our property so they could like trim down the trees because they'll eat everything about six foot up and just make it clean like a park. But our goats only wanted to be in the neighbor's pasture. So all they did was constantly go over there and I had to keep them in all the time. 
so the goats were not going to be my project. Many of my friends were bringing their farm animals and stuff, but mom, mom was like, she saw an article about Don Hansen in the local newspaper. It was just a little tiny one, like that the power company puts out once a year. And she's like, you should try making a knife. So I went to the library, got a book and made one out of a file. And, uh, I buffed the tar out of it. The living tar. I think I spent like 15 minutes grinding it and like 10 hours buffing on it and stuck a white-tailed deer antler handle in and JB welded it. And it was a humongous success with my friends. So I just went from there and started making them. Whereabouts are you from? Oh uh, yeah, that all happened in Missouri. We moved to Missouri like, I don't know, 22 years ago. So we were actually living without electricity for the first couple of years we moved to Missouri and just kind of living off the land and everything. By the time I made that first knife though, we'd moved back to having electricity and having power, which was really, really helpful. But uh, yeah, just the southern, uh, south central part of uh, Missouri. Wayne, you're from mid-north coast of New South Wales, as most people should know, but not actually, you know what, half our listeners are in America, so they won't have a clue what the mid-north coast of New South Wales was. So to, to put that into perspective, that's where the fires started. Yeah, pretty much. They started in oh, probably November, October, November last year in 2019. Um the one that it actually started with is only just, it actually burnt for seven months before they actually put it out. It was in the peat bog in the swamp and they couldn't put it out. It wasn't until the recent floods that it actually ended up getting put out. They tried flooding it, they tried running water into it to flood it and put it out and nothing worked. So yeah, it was um, pretty smoky and pretty ordinary up there for a while. A couple of days I didn't get back from work till like one o'clock in the morning when I get back through the roads. But um, but yeah, I wasn't directly affected, so I can't complain. No, that's right. A lot of people <laughs> would be far worse off. So tell us, Wayne, how did you get into knife making? I got into it through blacksmithing. So I spent 10 years traveling around Australia, working different jobs, just doing different things. And when I was going through the mid-north coast, New South Wales, which is, say, four hours north of Sydney, um, I found out at a blacksmith club. And I've always been fascinated by it, so I thought, I'll go along, have a go at that. You know, probably do it for 12 months and then move on again. That was back in 2000 now, and I've now been full-time since 2003. So, yeah, I think I found my little niche. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So, Kyle, tell us a bit about your style. Uh, what sort of knives do you actually make? And, 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 you know, if you don't know Kyle's work, you can find him on YouTube, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But tell us about your style, Kyle. Oh, boy, I, I like to try to do a whole bunch of different things, but it turns out that the thing that customers really like me to make and, and I really enjoy too are large fighters and buoys and daggers primarily. I'm kind of tipping my toe into the, the sword realm a little bit, doing some uh, some big like double-edged Viking style swords and that is tons of fun. But I specialize in like mosaic. Uh, Damascus is something that I really enjoy making and working with exotic materials or maybe even not exotic but just doing a lot of uh, a lot of work to bring out the best in the materials I'm using and very ABS style, I would say for sure. You know, the buoys look like big time buoys and the daggers are, you know, Quillian style European daggers. But something I really like is making just really big, massive ones with like 15, 16 inch blades and double edged and sharpened all the way around. And that's kind of my speciality. <laughs> nice. And is that what you started with? No, no, no. I started with little tiny knives. Like the first knife I made was like a file and, and three or four inches long on the blade. And then I made 
many, many more knives that were all about that same length. And I slowly transitioned into making cable Damascus knives because I really wanted to do pattern welded steel. But that was just that was just way too much work. Just forge out by hand. I did like one billet and I was like, nope, I'm going to do some cable mosaic. Uh, so I did a bunch of those for like a year or so. And they just had these stubby little like five inch blades with like a white tailed deer antler handle and some JB weld and slowly kind of transitioned uh, over the years into like the ABS style, like buoys and, and fighters and stuff. Uh, primarily when I found out about the ABS and started going through some, some training and stuff with them too. And tell us about that journey. So how old were you when you made that first knife? Uh, I was 14 years old when I made the first knife. And I kind of just made onesies and twosies for the next year, year and a half, and then uh, started getting really serious. And I wanted to go to the ABS school. Um, I was like 15 and a half, 16. I wanted to go to the ABS school and get some formal training on uh, just making knives. So I took an introduction to bladesmithing and a handles and guards class and then came back and it just it just launched me forward big time because I was just kind of looking at books and, and the random DVD or something. So that really helped getting some hands-on training there and uh, propel me forward a lot quickly. I was just having a look through Kyle Royer Knives on Instagram and I found his knife number one. It's pretty basic. It's pretty basic. You've come a long way, mate. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Did, thanks. Didn't you end up giving that to dad, Kyle? Yeah, I, I actually gave it to dad, but it's at my house right now just because like we were photographing it or something. So dad owns it, but it's at my place. <laughs> Tell me about that because it's strange to me. You made your first knife at 14, but if I recall correctly, you were made a master bladesmith under the ABS system before you were 20. I got my master smith ranking at 20 and then uh, the journeyman two years previously. So right after I got back from the ABS school, I just started really, really devoting a lot of time to it and trying to make knives that would like pass journeymen. So I was devoting all my time to it. Uh, I was like 16 at this point, and I went to a little local gun and knife show. And when I say gun and knife, it's mostly just a bunch of old guys sitting around with guns and then some like generic factory made knives. There's, there's nothing custom there at all. I go to that in my little town of like 2,500 people, and I got my first ever custom order for this Damascus buoy. I did I did a little bit of Damascus at this point because my dad had helped me build a press. He was going to order this big Damascus buoy and I priced it to him for like $250 and I was super excited to do it. Made this twist Damascus and it had like a maple handle that was like dyed with file work and stuff and I was super proud of the piece when I was done and thought it might even be worth a little bit more. But the guy came out and came out to pick up the knife and he wanted to spend like a hundred less than what we agreed on. And I was, I was like devastated because I was super proud of it. And I thought it might even be a little bit more valuable. So I held my ground though and, and told him no, didn't sell it to him. Just absolutely devastated without me knowing mom put it on eBay and sold it on there for like $800. And that just really blew me away. And I was like, oh, maybe I could look into doing this like more than a hobby and like it could be a full-time thing someday <laughs> so how much were you going to sell it to him for like 250 dollars. and he was trying to talk you down to 150 and you got 800 yes yep yeah right eh? they're yeah. the customers you don't need <laughs> in every country yep. i think <laughs> yep. yep i bet he's kicking himself because because that knife would be worth a fortune oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> he's, he's kicking himself now being greedy what a dick What's your preferred steel that you're using when you're not using uh, or creating your marvelous 
mosaic patterns? What's what's your favorite mono steel to go to? Well, from an artistic standpoint, my favorite is uh, W2 to do a clay hardened blade and do a homon. But a lot of times I do a really highly polished one and it may even take longer than Damascus. So I might end up charging more for that. But besides that, it's just, you know, 5160 and, and 1084 probably um, probably my two favorite for mono steel blades. Yeah, both fine steels. Yeah, I was scared. I'm having a bit of a look through your stuff while we're talking. Um, and you've got some pretty awesome uh, home on work on some of your big bowies there. Thanks. Something to work to. Kyle, what were your uh, biggest influences and mentors? And, you know, how did you meet them and how did you go about approaching them? And how has the relationship helped you? Hmm, that's a good question. My biggest influence, I'd say, I would say is uh, John White. I first met him at the Little Rock, Arkansas Knife Show many years ago. It was, it was the first year I went there and uh, I was probably 16, 17 years old. And at the time, any journeyman or mastersmith was like a superhero to me. Like if I saw one walk by or something, I would just like pretend not to see him and then just kind of trail as they followed, went, went along and like watch them walk away. So I went up to tons of them at the knife show, tons of different guys and had great conversations. And then something really clicked with John White. He was super, super just generous in his information and he was very encouraging and he he wanted to help point out things that I could do better in just the best way I've ever had anybody do. And the relationship kind of built from there. And over the years, you know, we didn't like talk on the phone or anything, but every time we'd see each other at a knife show, we'd talk a bunch about Damascus theory and creating patterns and how to do different things better. So that was the that was the biggest one, I would say. And then uh, also another one is uh, Ron Newton. I met him probably at the blade show a few years later. And uh, I found out through the grapevine that he was doing some classes. So I went up to him and asked if I could do like a one-on-one -on -one class with him and uh, started building a relationship with him there through that and went and took like an automatic folder class and learned so much. He's so precise in everything he does and he's very efficient at what he does too. It's not like he spends way more time on it than he needs to like I do a lot of times. So yeah, over the years we did that and did other classes with him and he became big time mentor to me almost like a second father because we, we we would talk on the phone all the time and just have a good old time just about all sorts of stuff it wasn't it went way beyond knives yeah great it's good to have those kind of people in your in your knife making journey they really give you a head start and end up being great friends i guess it's like me and Uncle keith and to a certain degree uh that prick kev <laughs> <laughs> why don't mentor you in anything <laughs> Unless it's how to act inappropriately. <laughs> <laughs> so, Wayne, do you want to tell us a little bit about your style and about your first knife? Oh, boy. My first knife I actually made at school, something you probably get arrested for these days. Once again, <laughs> it was a file. I, I did soften it, and I did it all by hand file. I filed the file by hand file. Um, I can't actually remember whether it was hardened. I think we're playing around with case hardening, some screwdrivers. So, actually, I got a file and case hardened it. It wasn't long after Rambo came out, so it was a Bowie style with the with the serrations on the back <laughs> and probably only a four-inch blade. But it actually worked out as a shocking knife. It was a really good fish scaler. Oh, yeah, right. Those serrations on the back worked really well with the yeah, fish scaler. Yeah. But that was that was in school, and I didn't touch another knife again until many years later, and I happened to be working, and I got a power hacksaw blade, and I made an open-style folder and a kitchen knife out of it. 
out of that. And then once again, it was a big gap again until I got into the blacksmithing. And I didn't really start making the knives again until I was working full-time as a blacksmith. I was at the Heritage Theme Park. I was seven days a week at the Forge. So I had plenty of time to play around. So I started playing with knives and then people come in and see them. Oh, wow, that looks great. Can I buy that? It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I went from there. So I started off with, yeah, just coil springs and cable, cable Damascus. I can remember having a big argument with a lot of people because I started out with galvanized wire rope. Whoa. And um, all these arguments, you cannot fire weld galvanized wire rope. Well, you can. Maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> you don't break, but but you can actually do it. So it's... just don't breathe the green smoke in. <laughs> That's the best bit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But as to as to my style now, I'm sort of leaning more towards fully forged looks in my knives, and probably going more in towards axes, which complements your blacksmith background. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to go into areas where a lot of knife makers don't have those skills and understanding of the moving of that metal to that degree. So I'm I can't I'm hopeless. I can't copy people. I might do it once to figure out how to do something, but I'm always whole time I'm thinking, how can I put my own spin on this? How can I make this different? I think like last Sydney knife show had that stainless sand my axe. Um, that went off pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but yeah I'm still playing with that with different stainless and carbon steel combinations to get that right. So that's probably where I'm more heading towards now is that sort of stuff. So good as gold. Hey, Josh, um, you're sort of known, I guess, uh, as the unseen person, the one that does the tech stuff and the media <laughs> for um, Kyle. Have you made any knives? Have I made any knives with Kyle? Have you made any knives in general? Oh, by myself. No, I have not, actually. <laughs> I have not made a single knife. Kyle has made a knife for me one time, though, but I have not made a knife. Uh, I'm normally just the guy videoing Kyle and just editing the videos and posting those online but yeah yeah I, I i think the knife process is really cool though and i've actually learned quite a bit watching kyle and i find myself replying to people on youtube answering questions about knife making but i've never made a knife myself but you've you've certainly sat there and watched what thousands of hours of knife oh, making. man thousands of hours watching boring stuff making it entertaining but i'm not saying knife making's boring it's just I, it could, I make it funner. Josh puts in all these hard yards to try and make a YouTube channel out of what Kyle does. Now, Kyle's knives are exceptional, but the videos are also of extremely high quality. And I don't know if everyone in Australia follows these guys, particularly on YouTube, but also Instagram. Josh, why don't you tell us your channels? Uh, yeah, Kyle Rowe Knives is the channel name on YouTube. And uh, Instagram is also Kyle Rowe Knives. Uh, we also made a course, the Takedown Bowie Knife course, at LearnKnifeMaking.com, uh, that we spent many hours again trying to make, like three months. That was a challenge. Oh man, trying to make an online course. Huge so, project. Oh yeah. This yeah. is an online masterclass that anyone can buy and do. There's 15 hours of detailed, edited down footage. Yeah. Uh, how long did it take to video it? A month? Two months? We spent about a month and a half working on the knife. It took about twice as, uh, two or three times as long to make the knife than it normally would, just from all the stopping and videoing and setting up light and cameras and everything. And then, of course, Josh went on for months after that to uh, edit it all down into a, a digestible thing you could watch. Yeah, yeah. Raw footage ended up being like one terabyte, which was about 60 hours of raw content 
that I edited down took about two to three months to make a 15 hour consumable course. And it's, it's very good. I'm very proud of it. The name of the website again is learnknifemaking.com and you can purchase their course there to build a takedown buoy. Now, I don't think it would be the course for a beginner. It is a masterclass, correct boys? We've had beginners get it, but we meant to go more after people kind of in the middle with basic tools teaching how to make a basically a master smith quality knife. Yeah, the target audience really is anybody who's like a little bit familiar with knife making and stuff, but they just want to take it like to the next level and start doing some extra complicated things like take down buoys and stuff. So really hitting that that bottom intermediate kind of level and then and then on up from there, any anybody in that range, I think is going to learn a lot from the course. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Wayne, tell us about yourself, mate. Are you a full time maker or part time? I'm a full time blacksmith bladesmith, so I don't spend all my time making knives. Probably the bread and butter these days is actually teaching. So I probably average 50 courses a year. So um, mostly one-on-one or two people, um, just in my workshop. Though I do travel. There's a group up in Queensland, QMAC, that I regularly go up there and I've done everything from axe making to basic blacksmithing to traditional joinery um, coffee table bases. To I think the next one I'm going to do is making a skillet. Yeah, nice. Nice. <laughs> so that's what I like. I like that variety. Yeah not just making knives. I do have a, another business now that I started before the teaching took off that, and that's actually sharpening hairdressing scissors. So that gets me out of staring at the same four walls all day and um, yeah, it can be not too bad on the optics sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Wayne, in your teaching, have you ever had those times where you've had two students who were just so far out there that you've decided at that point in time, I think I want to quit? you ever had anyone push you that far? Oh, I've had a, a couple push me close. And I've had a couple I've just <laughs> pulled the pin on them at, um, just because they weren't getting it and all they were doing were whinging and complaining. And I just turned around and said, well, this isn't for you. You know, there's the door. See you later. I do think Kev might have been referring to himself. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Kev's done a course with you. Do you remember the course that Matt McVicker and I came and did with you for making tomahawks? I've been trying to forget it, but it's not easy, not easy to do. But um, not, not just forging um, lessons, but fishing lessons as well. That was awesome. The fishing was fantastic. You guys also thought the fishing was fantastic because I believe, uh, as was pretty clearly stated, it was the first time that Matt and I had shut our mouths yeah. uh, in about two days was when we went down to fish. <laughs> I had to try something. <laughs> yeah, no, that worked. <laughs> so asking the same question of Kyle, you're a full-time maker, Kyle? Yes, yep, full-time since, uh, since I turned 18. And you don't just employ yourself. You've got quite a few people involved in the business now. Uh, yeah, about a year and a half, almost two years ago, my family and I came together and we wanted to try to make something bigger. We were all kind of listening to the same audiobooks uh, about building businesses and, and, and starting things that could uh, that could last generations. And we all came together and decided to join up and make knives and do literally anything that we could think of to um, just kind of create this business that we're going for. So I work with uh, my mom and dad and my brother Josh does the YouTube full time. I've been teaching dad how to make knives and he just sent me a photo of his first mosaic Damascus just the other day. And I'm super proud of him because it came out amazing. And uh, I hadn't really showed him how to do it. He just kind of watched me do it a few times, but he's doing chef's knives and all sorts of crazy stuff 
leading up to that, we had him. We, he was trying to make uh, rings out of uh, out of uh, money by putting holes in them and, and bending them over and everything. And we've tried all sorts of stuff, just trying to see what uh, what kind of sticks out there. And mom comes over and does uh, tons of emailing and uh, business things that most knife makers avoid completely. So that is absolutely amazing. And she also does tons and tons of work on Instagram, especially. And that's kind of her baby keeping keeping stuff going on there. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, fantastic. It's good to have your family close like that and be involved. And, you know, it's really something special. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love it. It's great. Oh, really? You love me? Because <laughs> I, <was, laughs> I can't see these guys as well. I was just hearing stuff like left field like that come in. <laughs> oh, dear. I've been with these guys now for two days, just pretty much doing everything, eating and showing them around and uh, all our meals and things. And it's just really a delight to watch them interact as they try and make a YouTube video. This is work for them. This is their daily grind. And so they're, they're trying to make YouTube content. They're trying to enjoy, you know, a new experience. And uh, it's just it's just fabulous to watch these guys as they interact together. I guarantee you it's not always fabulous. Sometimes it's clawing each other's eyes out, but we normally make up at some point after that. <laughs> Just like you and me, Kev. Yeah, that's it. When I was growing up, if my brother and I were having a fight, my mum would come into the room with a glass of water and literally just tip it on us. And that would quite often end the fight in a matter of moments. Do you guys ever get to those situations, like you're just saying, where you want to claw each other's eyes out? How do you deal with that close proximity day to day and being brothers, you know, do you do you just sometimes grin and bear it, or do you just naturally get along really well all the time? Um, Be honest. Kyle's point. <laughs> Kyle's pointing at me. Um, I, I guess you could say kind of naturally. I guess. I mean, there's been times where I just I I imagine myself walking out and just driving away. Just it, it's probably happened three times in the past year and a half. But uh, we we always, you know, we cool off. We always come back and we're, we're always, you know, just we're, we're brothers. I mean, I, not many people can go in business, uh, family business. But for some reason, we can because I, I think it's because we forgive each other quite a bit. We don't hold grudges against each other, I think, is why we're able to keep doing business. Because we, we do make each other mad all the time. Yeah. But we, we forgive each other and, and we don't hold it a grudge too long. <laughs> So when you, um, when, you, when you get tired of, I'm assuming that you get to these points in time where you just need time out from the knife making and you need time out from the videoing, what do you do in your spare time? What, what, what can you guys go and do for an hour or two that takes you away from what you do all the time and that you have fun with? Uh, I just picked up the guitar about uh, six months ago or so and I've been loving that journey. I, I discovered, air quotes, discovered Metallica uh, at the age of 28 and uh, just heard that amazing guitar sound. And I'm like, I want to make sounds like that with an instrument. So I've been loving that. And it's actually opened up like a whole new world of enjoying music and stuff. Dad's always loved oldies from like the late 60s, 70s and 80s. And I liked it OK. But now I'm really starting to like those songs because they got great guitar and and uh, wanting to learn how to play them and stuff. So I like doing that. And it really calms and relaxes me and I have my first hobby since I was 18 because knife making was a hobby and then it turned full-time and I haven't really had a hobby since then so it's great yeah and uh for me I I have a, a wife and a kid at home I'm 24 actually today 
Yeah. It's your birthday. Yeah, yeah it's my birthday today. <laughs> Happy birthday, birthday, Josh. I forgot to tell you. Yeah, I forgot. Happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday, Josh. Yeah. Far out, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm 24. Uh, got married about three years ago, and uh, we have a little girl about one and uh, one year and a half. One, one year and six months, <laughs> roughly. And uh, I basically just spend time with them. Uh, I don't really have a hobby other than, I guess, that. But that's not really a hobby. That's more of something... A, a, I better be careful what I say next. <laughs> I enjoy my family very much. I enjoy getting to know my family. I enjoy watching my little baby girl grow up. <laughs> no, that's a fair call. How about you, Wayne? Oh, I just love getting out in the bush. That's my stress relief. Whether it be fishing, hiking, hunting. Also enjoy not having to buy meat. Fish, I I probably go fishing twice a week. I don't get hunting as much as I want to, but I've still got, I think, a deer and a half in the freezer um, and half a pig. So, yeah. I'll get to go hunting again in April, so hopefully I'll still have plenty. I'll top top the freezer right up by then and give a few out to friends and family. And um, yeah, but that's that's my stress relief. Well, I'm not a big people person, so yeah, getting away from people is my my relaxing. Yeah, good on you. <laughs> so, Kyle, a lot of people follow your channel, right? They're they're listening to what you do and they're using you as one of their guiding forces, their, their big resources in knife making, if you will. Cole, who do you draw on for resources? Is it a person? Is it a YouTube channel? Is it books? Is it, what is it, Cole? Where do you get your inspiration and what's your biggest resource? Oh boy, that is a really deep question. When it comes to YouTube stuff, I'm constantly like watch any channel I'm watching for entertainment or whatever. I'm always like analyzing what they're saying and the jokes and stuff and trying to think of what's funny so I can incorporate that kind of stuff into what we do. But as far as like knife making and stuff goes, that that comes from all over the place. Of course, a couple of like my mentors like John White and uh, and uh, Ron Newton, lots of inspiration came from them over the years. And then after that was like Buster Ransky looking at pictures of his daggers and beautiful artwork on those but now it just kind of comes from anywhere and everywhere as long as i'm paying attention looking for it like if i if i'm closed off to it then i won't get inspired by different things i see but uh we're just driving through sydney and uh, i'm looking at buildings and there's this old building that's got this like stone archway thing over the door and it's got this scroll work and stuff on it and i'm looking at it and just thinking about putting that pattern on a knife and like how those scrolls look and how it would look on a blade or something. So all over the place, really. I think that's Sydney's local jail, mate, from the sound of that description. <laughs> it may have been, but it can be inspiring. It's amazing what you see in just a shape, you know, and it, can be, it could be anywhere and you can just see a shape and you get an idea from it. And it's mm -hmm. a curve. Yeah, it could be a curve, a curve. Could be a scroll. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whatever. So we're going to see an opera house knife from Kyle Royer. <laughs> five or six different blades poking out and some mosaic work on it in the shape of tiles <laughs> well, you can you, you can run with that if you like mate i'll, I'll give you creative license on that <laughs> oh <laughs> hey, you don't sound convinced <laughs> uh, no i don't know i don't it's it's it's, it doesn't translate like directly to a knife a lot of times it's just like these little things that kind of draw you towards a certain like shape and, and styles and, and stuff like that is kind of what I was trying to mean. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fantastic stuff. So I was having a bit of a, like, so, you know, I, I look at your stuff every now and then, but you know, when you've got these algorithms in social media, like Instagram, quite often you'll 
go back and have a look and realize you've missed about 35 different posts. But I like your small tips that you give people on how to do stuff. And, you know, I wish I'd sort of gone right back to the very start a long time ago and taken more notice of your, you know, the, the one minute tips on how to, you know, start off one of your components for one of your buoys or buoys, for example. You must get a lot of feedback from people on that. Do you try and get back to, I know it's probably, this is probably one of those hard questions, but did you try and get back to and interact with, you know, most people that interact with you via social media? Oh yeah, that, that is actually really challenging because the more we grow the different social medias, the more comments and stuff there are to reply to. So basically like there'll be certain questions that I'll go back and reply to. And then there'll be some about like materials or something that my, that uh, my mom could reply to, like if she knows what kind of like darkening agent I was using or something, because she's actually learned a lot about knife making just through my journey too. And then uh, dad answers some questions sometimes, quite a few, especially when they're relating to like things that he knows when it comes to like uh, making chef's knives and, and stuff like that. And we try to get to as many as we can, miss tons of them, but at least pick out really good ones and uh, uh, try to help people out as much as possible uh, through DMs and stuff too without trying to keep from spreading ourselves too thin because that, that can be really easy to do as well. And you might miss miss the big picture and not be able to help anybody out because you're out of business and you won't be posting anything ever again on Instagram or YouTube. So can't spread yourself too thin and, and just try to do what you can to help answer the questions and everything. Yeah, because that adds to um, obviously very long work days for you as it is. I don't think that's what some people, or I think they forget about is, you know, you finish a 12 hour workday and then you're expected to be happy on social media answering everyone's questions, uh, which generally extends to quite long days doing what you do. Oh yeah, yeah, that could uh, that could add a lot to it. And and uh, if you're spending an eight or, or 12 hour day on knives, like sometimes you're mentally like exhausted by the end of the day. So, but we, we, we try to get back to a lot of them like through the day, it's just part of what we're doing with our company and everything. So it's takes some little time here and there to get to get back to them as part of the workday too, because there's no way we'd be able to get back to as many as we as we want to just by doing it in in spare time, because we would then probably go crazy. <laughs> How do you deal with um, you were talking before with your uh, mentors and seeing those master smiths and sneaking and hiding and then walking behind them in awe of them? How do you cope with people doing that to you these days? I think it's really amazing, but at the same time, like, I don't completely understand it. I feel like I'm just another guy making knives and, you know, doing my best and stuff. So it kind of, it, it blows my mind when I think about it, that, that people are like really inspired by what I do and stuff and that, that they like uh, the different knives just because uh, a lot of times I don't feel it. I just feel like I'm out there making knives like anybody else and stuff and, and just kind of sharing my journey too. So I'm very, very honored and privileged to be in the position I am. And, and when I think about it and I'm reminded by that, it's it's very honored, humbling. That's what I'm looking for. It's, I'm very humbled. It's very honoring. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can punch Josh if you need to. Ow! He's going to interrupt like that. Ow! <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, Kyle, what's the best knife that you've made to date? And where can people go and have a look at a picture of it? The best knife I've made to date, the one I'm most proud of, is definitely the sword I made last year. I made a 36-inch bladed kind of European-style double-edged, like, broad sword. And I was super proud of it. Spent 
three months working on this thing, like 12 hour days, definitely the most time I've ever spent on a piece. And it's got like a nine or 10 inch handle, so you can get a full blown two hands on it. It's technically not a two handed sword though, because those actually have a really long handle with, with some empty space in the middle. It's technically a hand and a half, but you can get both your hands on it and it just feels great to wield that thing around. It's historically inspired, uh, but I did kind of some of my own things that deviated a little bit into my style, but I was super happy with it. It's Mosaic Damascus. Uh, you can see it on Instagram and also on YouTube. We've got the full build on YouTube of multiple videos working on that thing. Josh probably hated me for spending three months working on one project because uh, a lot of people know that if you have a long drawn out project on YouTube, it's actually one of the worst things like you can do. People really like short, small projects that they can like see quickly, but it's it was great. Yeah, it ended up being a 25 part YouTube series. That is quite impressive. I've got to say, though, that some of the best, well, actually one of my favorite YouTube channels is a series that's been running for six years, a long-term project. It's called Project Binky. If you're into cars and motorsports, they're fitting a, all the running gear from a Toyota Celica into a Mini Cooper. It's, it's just they've been going for six years. It's freaking amazing. So if you do get on and have a look at, at, at something that is a long-running thing, and every time they load up a video, there's like 200,000 views in the first 10 minutes. It's Everybody's waiting for the next video. So you guys, uh, yeah, maybe it's, uh, it's, there are exceptions to every rule. That's what I'm going to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the knife making industry, where often uh, we find something that agitates us a little bit, whether it's something that you know you see another knife maker doing, or your brother, for example, um, do you have any uh, pet peeves? Like what what upsets you what when you see it in the knife making industry? I have a lot of pet peeves. They're mostly directed to like things around my house and like at my shop and stuff. Not necessarily at the knife making industry, but like. Funny little things like dad using the buffer. I have I have like this one buffing spindle and I use this 3M Scotch-Brite wheel a lot to deburr stuff. Like I'll use it all through the day. I'll just click it on for like 10 seconds. Somehow dad uses a buffing wheel all the time and I can't figure it out. There's always a buffing wheel on there no matter how many times I change out the buffing wheel and put that 3M back on there. I'll be I'll go away for 2 minutes and there'll be a buffing wheel back on there. And I'm guessing he probably feels the same way because it's always changing for him, too. So that's that's just a dumb little one. A fun one that Josh could tell you more about is uh, noise whenever we start to record something. Oh, my. Yeah, 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 yeah. So whenever it comes to YouTube videos, it's best to just get the talent, in this case, Kyle, making the noise. But a lot of the times whenever we start videoing, Dad, for some reason, likes to start working a lot and turning on grinders and the forge and the press and just making all sorts of inconvenient noises <laughs> all the time. But yeah, that, 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 that's a pet peeve of Kyle and mine. He's work. He's working all the time. It just seems like, it seems like he's waiting for us sometimes to hit the record button. Then he flips something on. I, it, I know it's not that way, but it just seems like it. Cause one time he had the grinder going, the chop saw going, the vent going, I think the press was going and maybe even the surface grinder all at the same time. And I was like, <laughs> he's probably just thinking payback. <laughs> yes. Finally time to get payback. All those teenage years. I had Keith grinding in the shop today. Keith came down and made a hammer as well. That's Unky Keith, Keith Flutter. And he was in my shop grinding. These guys are so nice, right? And uh, they, they don't swear or anything. They're really lovely guys. And I don't mean that in a bad way. They're really nice guys. And I'm walking past behind Keith and 
keeps grinding, and next minute the belt explodes on the grinder. <laughs> the carbide plating is around the wrong way, and it's caught on a, on a sharp edge, and the belt just exploded. And I started giving Keith a mouthful about what he can do with my tools and what he can't, and <laughs> telling him what a blithering idiot he was, and the whole bit. And these two boys, mate, they went. Uh, I don't. I don't think they have the the same kind of uh, rage that we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did. I didn't get the explosion on video. But I started recording right after the belt broke, and uh, yeah, we were we were able to see everything that Corn was doing. There'll be a few beeps in the in the YouTube. Video. <laughs> the timing was like so crazy though, because he was in there grinding for like an hour, and then right when Corn was like right behind him walking up, you know, it blew up, and it was loud, really loud. I mean, I was like five feet away, and I I jumped too. I just shit myself. It was. <laughs> Anyway, it happens. <laughs> it happens to everyone. Yeah, bloody it makes you jump every time. Uh, we took the carbide plate and over to the die filer, stuck in a needle file, and we broke the corners. <laughs> Not a bad idea. I'm just having a little giggle to myself now because I brought up uh, the photo of the Royer brothers that you put up on Instagram just now, Corrin. On the Neuroc at Gamaco. Oh, Corrin at Gamaco, yeah. Corrin at Gamaco. So now that's the vision that I have of them sitting there on this podcast now. It's just the smiley face and the thumbs up going. Still still like. That's it. And you can go to my Instagram and see that one. And duck to theirs. They're going to have like lots of videos about this trip to Australia. So it'll be interesting whether you come from Australia or not to, to go and have a look at their channel. Give them a subscribe, guys, and, and see what they're doing because... We've had a pretty good time. It hasn't been what we had planned and what I would have liked to have done. We've been trumped by bushfires and floods and uh, the national parks being closed and just pouring down rain all day. But we have had a great time. I think it's fair to say, boys. Oh, it's yeah. It's been amazing. He keeps downplaying it, but I've I've gone to two other countries, like far from the U.S., and this has by far surpassed both of those trips just, just in the first day, let alone the, uh, the next two that we've already been here. Yeah, yeah. This is my first time outside of the country and my first time flying, let alone a 16-hour flight. And when we got to Australia, it's just the, the, the tours and stuff Corn was taking us on was just, it was perfect. I couldn't imagine a better way to leave the country. <laughs> so, Wayne, what's, what's your pet peeves, mate? Oh, probably hammer technique. Watching people, so many YouTube videos, I turn it on and just, I get probably a minute into it and uh, they don't know what they're doing. I don't know. Just from I'm the not, way they swing a hammer. Just the way they swing a hammer. Well, because don't I, because watch me of, too closely. Because sometime. I come from the blacksmithing side of it. <laughs> don't um, watch me don't either. Watch <laughs> Do not watch our channel. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I've got a perfect technique, but it's I can normally tell within a minute of first starting watching a video whether they actually whether they're just mashing the metal or whether they're controlling the metal. If that makes sense, um, that's my pet peeve: is people just mashing metal. They just mm -hmm bashing it out and hoping it goes the shape they want to rather than controlling the way the shape goes. So. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll wait till I get you up to my shop. Yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't been there yet. No, you haven't been to happen. my shop. Yeah. yeah. One of, uh, we just, we have to have an event up there, a symposium or something. I'll come up. Yeah. No, I'll just more. come up actually more, more the merrier. I will yeah. do that. I'll promise you I'll come up. We'll go for a hammer in. Yeah, just, just leave Kev behind. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send McVicker a text now. Kev, it's on the 23rd of March. It's the 26th, right? Yeah. Well, no worries. I'll be there. No, don't get him turn up early. Oh, no, stay hang around. around. Oh. <laughs> I'll just camp out the front. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> so the best knife you've made to date was the sword. 
do you make custom orders? And I've actually, sorry, I'm going to stop there. Cole, we spoke about the sword on this podcast before because there's the, the story I've told, and people have to go back and listen to the previous 20-something episodes, the story I've told about the young fella picking it up while we were discussing, <laughs> while we were talking it. He's picked it up in the middle of the, uh, of the aisle and swung it around like a galoot. And poor Kyle, I just, he was trying to be as polite as he could, but that no one was supposed to touch that sword. So, you know, there's just people are rude sometimes. Well, yeah, the, the customer actually specifically requested, because uh, it was a custom order. It was the only way I was able to do a project that would take that long. But yeah, he, he didn't want anybody holding it just because he didn't want any scratches or anything. So it was different than what I normally do. I normally really encourage people to pick up my work and uh, handle it because I go to knife shows, not necessarily to sell knives, but just to build a relationship with people in person and get the knives in their hands and, uh, you know, just, yeah, build relationships. So when that guy picked it up, he was one of the two over that whole weekend that just grabbed it and picked it up. And I was just, he was swinging around and I was just freaking out and just like, please don't scratch my bluing. <laughs> <laughs> don't get blood on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And don't kill anybody. <laughs> so do you take custom orders, right? Or do you make knives for sale on completion? Do you do your own thing or do you let somebody place an order and then make to the order? I do mostly custom orders, but every once in a while I uh, squeeze in some time to do a spec knife too and uh, try to get a knife at a knife show every once in a while and, and do that. With the custom orders, I've pretty much slowed down taking like, I won't just take any order. It has to be somebody that uh, comes to me with a cool idea for something that I really want to build because I want to build if I'm going to spend a lot of time on something, I want it to be something that I'm excited about. So kind of go through customers and kind of screen out what, they, what they're what they looking for and, and then maybe, you know, go with certain ones depending on uh, what kind of proposals they have for a knife build. Do you have trouble saying no to people wanting something made? I have a really hard time saying no. I yeah. just, I, I like to say yes to everybody on everything pretty much. But, you know, of course, if, if there's some kind of time gap or something where I have the time to do something, then yeah, I'll, I'll do something extra, even though it, it might not be my ideal thing that I want to do. Uh, it's not like I'm like super picky or anything, but you, you can just tell sometimes what customers just by emailing them a little bit, which customers are going to be easy to work with and, and let you have like your creativity and freedom to kind yeah. of do what you want or not. Yeah, I understand that very well. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got mixed feelings at the moment, Kyle, about my um, proposed Opera House knife. I'm, I'm getting the feeling that you might not want to do it, but you just, that you might <laughs> just say yes for the sake of being polite. I understand if you say no, okay? It's all good. It's all all right. I'll, 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 I'll take that on board. I'll make my own. <laughs> well, something that would probably be more likely to get done is like, is there some kind of historic Australian knife that's like, this is an Australian knife because that's something that would be cool. I don't know if that exists or not. Well, I... crocodile Dundee. Nah. <laughs> the buoys were for sale here in the very early days, and Sheffield made cutlery was brought out here. But I think historically, it's interesting to note that the first ground blades in the world were ground in Australia. So that the archaeological evidence shows that the indigenous people of Australia were grinding axes in this case we're grinding those axes into an edge tool while everywhere else in the world they were being napped and struck into edge tools wow that's incredible so that was forty thousand years ago or something so it's pretty interesting that yeah, we do have a that. bit of history yeah. yeah yeah so and they still ground axes if we had a bit more better weather and i could take you where i wanted to take you i could have shown you places where they sharpen the axes and you can still see the grooves in the sandstone from where they take the water and sharpen the axes and I'd love to have shown you that. And hopefully, maybe not this trip, but next trip we'll get to that. 
That's so cool. I had no idea that like Australia was the first to do grinding. That is amazing. Albeit uh, just on a piece of sandstone. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah, hey, what whatever if, you've got. What about you, Wayne? You doing custom orders or you just do whatever you like? I don't do a lot of custom orders. Once again, I'll, I'll just, if I pick it, if something interests me, because I do the blacksmithing as well as the, the knife making, so I get a bit of variety in that. The most recent customer I took was actually a um, riggers set, so making a marlin spike as well as the knife. So the knife was pretty ordinary, pretty normal, but the marlin spike was a really fun little project to do. So they're the sort of things I, you know, I'll take it if they pique my interest. So I've got a, um, I've got a couple of big gates I've got to do at the moment. So the only real knives and axes I do now are for making, getting ready for shows. So whether it be Ironfest or um, Sydney Knife Show. Yeah, probably my only two. I hear there's a second Ironfest, maybe at Kasula in October. Yeah, I've heard there's the, the rumour. Yeah. So, yeah, that could be another one, but we'll see how we go. But We'll be there. Yeah. Ironfest is a great there. event. It's a long way to go for most people. In fact, everybody, it's a long way from anywhere. Yep. But it's just such a fun weekend of frivolity and... Yeah, people weirdness. watching. <laughs> people watching. <laughs> people watching. Yeah. It's an awesome event. Ah, so. uh, you, you cannot describe it in words. You, you really can't, can you? <laughs> no. Just get on Google Images Ironfest and you'll see things that you didn't know were things. <laughs> <laughs> Just be aware you cannot unsee yeah. them. Yeah, you uh. really can't. You can't wash that shit off. <laughs> it's probably the one weekend people can go and spend in that enclosed environment where they can just be as bizarre as they want to be and probably not actually get judged. Well, not too much anyway. Because just as you think something's no. weird and crazy, the next person walks around the corner and just takes that weird and crazy to another level. Absolutely, absolutely. For Josh and Kyle, it's a weekend where people go and get to dress up as steampunk or World War reenactors and medieval reenactors and just people dressed in completely, completely obscure, crazy gear. And they're all put into one showground area um, for this weekend and everyone just has a great time doing it. So you might have somebody that's dressed in a Victorian suit, another person will be coming past in a gimp outfit, and uh, someone else will come past in God knows what they're dressed as. Jack Sparrow. Jack, who knows? <laughs> there was the Roman Legion, then the World War II guys, I think it was. And, yeah. Yeah, eclectic mix of people. The big French-English battle reenactment, and the <laughs> Australian jousting championships. and Corin's showing us pictures now, and that looks pretty interesting. That's wild. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, it's an Iron awesome Fest, weekend. Google Images, if you haven't seen it before. It's an awesome weekend. If you, wherever you come from, uh, the New South Wales Artist Blacksmiths have the demos there. And just frankly, it's a fun weekend. And it can rain, hail, snow, sunshine, 40 degrees, all on one weekend. It's yes. really a crazy place for weather. And it was there a long time ago, Kev. We met Danae, like this young lady came out of the crowd with a little folding knife in a pocket. You remember that? I just Keith Flutter's just I'll be, walked I'll be in. Keith yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, right. sorry, Keith. Sorry, Keith Flutter's <laughs> just walked in. Hello. You'll have to get a bit closer to the mic. But yeah, this young lady turned up and she had done this engraving in titanium on a knife, and she flipped out in front of Keith and I, and we both went for the wallets, and Keith got there first. So Keith owns pretty much the first knife. Danae's engraved and it's something special. I mean, they got better and better over the years and I don't know where she is now, but I hope she's still doing it. Anyway, Iron Fest, craziness. Yeah, for sure. What about um, how much time do you think you actually spend making knives compared to doing the social media and the rest of the other side of selling, uh, marketing? Oh, oh, that can be that can be extreme. Um, 
for a while we were trying to just really focus on me making knives and Josh kind of just videoing without like disturbing me too much, but we can make a lot better content if I'm like making a video on purpose, like with a storyline and, and, and stuff happening through it, but that takes a lot more time. Yeah. So we kind of been jumping around all over the place on that. Something that we've started doing for a few weeks before we came to Australia here is I do uh, four days a week of just making knives and then uh, we take a whole day and do some kind of video project or something. And that way it's not like breaking up every day of the week into a bunch of little segments where you got to like refocus your mind after you did some side thing, you know, with the video or something. Yeah, so you can get a run on with it. and Yeah. Keep, yeah, that's that's probably a good way of doing it. Yeah. But yeah, we're, we're trying a lot of different stuff. We haven't found the exact answer yet because <laughs> he always wants more time, but I need more time to make knives, so it's a there constant probably battle. There probably isn't an exact... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're in a really fortunate position, though, because your marketing and your social media are all sort of managed for you. Oh yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, I, it's a great, great position because I've got Josh doing YouTube all the time and mom doing, uh, Instagram and, and doing tons of business stuff. I am very, very blessed to be able to focus a lot on knives and do it full time. I mean, a lot of people don't even, aren't even able to get into doing it full time or anything, even if they want to. Um, so I've got great family just building everything up and we're just trying to make something out of it together. Yeah, great stuff, mate. Kyle, give us a virtual tour of your workshop, like what equipment you have in there, and let us know what is your favorite piece of equipment and why. Um, virtual tour. All right. So one of the first big pieces of equipment I got in my shop is actually my anvil, and I'm really proud of it uh, because I spent a lot of time working on it and making it. It's uh, it's like this 450-pound anvil. It's actually made out of mild steel, so it will dent relatively easy, but we coated the top of it with some high carbon uh, weld and then surfaced it. But it's a giant kind of, it's got a triangle horn and a round horn. And uh, I spent a month cutting out the shape with a torch and then filling areas where the welder cut out too much. Uh, this was back when I didn't need to make money or anything because I couldn't spend a month doing that now. <laughs> yeah, so I've got that. And then um, uh, the hydraulic press my dad and I built, it's like a 40 ton H-frame press. I do all my Damascus on it. I don't have any kind of uh, hammers or anything, uh, air, mechanical hammers or air hammers. And then I've got a, uh, a KMG uh, grinder, 2x72, um, still using the three-step pulley on it. Uh, I still haven't converted it over to have variable speed or anything, but it gets the job done. It only takes me like 15 seconds to change speeds, and I technically only need two speeds, so... It works. Um, got a Benton Harbor, Michigan, uh, Coville surface grinder made in 1958. That is, it, I, I love it. It's great. It's it's one of those super, super heavy, old, well-built tools. It uses a big, like, 12-inch stone. Uh, got a nice-sized magnetic table on it. And um, that's, that's one of those tools that just makes life a lot easier. But you can totally get by without it. Um... Disc sander is probably the newest thing I've gotten. I've gone so many years without one. I just got one like a year and a half ago. So that's that's actually one of the most advanced tools in my shop because it actually has a VFD on it and it can go in reverse or forward and stuff. So uh, <laughs> go figure. Then we've got all the workbenches and uh, milling machine, just a, a grizzly milling machine, um, not high end or low end, just kind of in the middle it's, well actually it's probably on the low end but it's it's a big one so it's beefy enough to not wobble around too much and then the knees adjustable on it um got a little lathe set up um and then inside in my master bedroom 
Uh, I've got air running in from the shop, probably one of probably almost nobody that has a 150 pound air outlet that goes into their bedroom. And uh, I've got my engraving equipment <laughs> set up in there. I'm sorry. I was just watching Lawrence <laughs> making like, faces. What the Where is this going? <laughs> We're pulling hands in the shop. Uh-huh. But I now thought I, I missed. Understand. I'm like, no, he. I was I'm like, thinking... no, he didn't just say the master bedroom, did he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he engraved in, his, uh, in the master bedroom. Yep. So, Carl, you're still single. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am, actually. <laughs> yeah, I've got – it's it's a really nice light room and everything, and it's right next to the French door. But I could if you, if you had a really tiny car that would fit through a French door, you could pull it in there and do all sorts of mechanic work because I got that 150 pounds of air and do whatever pneumatic tools you want. <laughs> But yeah, so I've got the engraving set up there <laughs> from GRS with a microscope. That's just so something I'd do if I wasn't married. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, just have, have some machines in there. <laughs> I just love that, man. That's awesome. I mean, it's just engraving. It's it's on a little computer desk. It's not like it's that invasive yeah, or anything. I get it. I get it. But it's still cool. <laughs> yeah, and it gets that stuff out of the shop too, so it's not getting dust on it all the time. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the most of it. My dad built me a great workbench because I had this wobbly, tiny little thing for many, many years that I did all my like fitting on, and like it had a flat plate that I would like sand on and stuff, and it was always just like shaking and screeching. So he got this really nice, like two-inch thick maple top uh, that's many pieces of wood all layered together, and and put it up at standing height so I can stand in the shop more instead of be sitting at it so much just for posture and all that. And I absolutely love it, and it looks really good on YouTube, and and yeah, that's pretty much the shop. Yeah, oh, awesome. That's awesome. Nice, yeah. Sounds great. Now you you probably would have been really impressed actually when you went into Goran's workshop then. Oh, super impressed. Yeah. Yeah. His shop is loaded. Isn't it loaded ever? to the gills? It's it's great. You were talking about your big heavy surface grinder, and I can only see Goran's face, and he, I got to admit, he's, his head tilted up and his eyes glazed over. And he's just, he's thinking, big, heavy machine. Where could I fit that? Where could I fit that? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, there's a new toy out in my car, Corin. I just bought it down for him, too. So. Oh. Yeah, that's that new wall oh. oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. True story. <laughs> Guilty as charged, Your Honor. We need another intervention. <laughs> Corn shop is sweet. Uh, one of my favorite things in there is actually the little tiny air hammer. That thing is so cute. Oh. And and it's helped me learn that I like all air hammers now because I ran one I ran one that was like how heavy was that hit? Uh, the the seven hundred weight, which is about seven hundred pounds. Uh so it's about eight hundred pounds. Three hundred and fifty kilo. Three hundred and fifty kilograms, eight hundred pounds. I ran that one. one the other day. Yeah. And then I got to run this little tiny smallest one ever, and I learned that I like all air hammers. <laughs> I call that a sewing machine, the little nine kilo. <laughs> that's what you're calling it. Yeah. All right. So where were we? Yeah. So that's uh, that's my shop. Everything's digitized. <laughs> Everything, even the toaster oven. <laughs> even even the water that you pour. What what is that? You, you His slack it. bucket next to the forge has an automated like foot pedal, and it sprays out water on top. It's amazing. It's so oh, it's got. Yeah, I was talking to Corin, and, and I was like, this stuff has got to just feel good in your soul every time you use it, even though it's not necessary. It's all my excuses for not making knives. Like it's. There's, someone said once, I think it was me. Some people make knives and others make excuses. <laughs> and I do a bunch of stuff in my workshop just to um, 
I don't know, just because, really, it seems like a good idea. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I spend more time, time making tools to make knives than I do making knives. That's right. <laughs> Me too. That's my problem. But I make them to sell. That, that's true, actually. Yeah, that's <laughs> I think I buy them from you. Yeah. <laughs> so, if, uh, if, if you would like to tell us about your shop, Wayne. Oh, boy. i got that much crap in there. It's not funny. Star got three forges, or four forges, one portable one for demos, um, a main coke forge. We've got a small gas forge for everyday stuff, and then I've got a larger ribbon burner forge that I use for doing my Damascus and hammers and bigger stuff. Anvils, I've got oh, six anvils now. So once again, I've got one I keep just from doing my demonstrations. I don't let students anywhere near. And I've got four that I use. So if I, I take up to four students maximum. So, um, so I've got an anvil each from the students. And then I've just recently got a, a brand new, um, my first ever brand new anvil. One of the um, Bruce Beamish B&W, an uh, 80 kilo double horn European style. That's very, very nice. Nice. Uh, I've got one of them and, in order. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah, I've sort of banned the banned the um, students from that one as well because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that one getting stuffed up. So um, from there, as I move out, I've got a treadle hammer. Mostly all I do use that one for at the moment is setting rivets in my tongs. I make, oh, I don't know how many sets of tongs a year, probably four or 500 sets of tongs a year. Four or five hundred? Yeah, wow. I just got another, I just did a batch of 60 um, that I'm bringing down the symposium. Um, I've designed my own style of knife maker's tongs, what was that, five or six years ago? It's been a while. Um, yeah. yeah, and can't believe it, they just keep people wanting to buy them. Nice. So I'll get you a set, right? I'll get you a set, yeah. Carl, you can, we'll sort it out. Oh, yep. that'd be great. <laughs> so yeah, so back to the workshop, I got a, it's probably a 20 ton hydraulic press. I got it out of an engineering shop that just happened to have the right speed and everything. I, I bought it not knowing whether it worked. It just happened to be work perfect. Uh, I got a 75 kilo Anyang air hammer. Um, I got an old leader. It's Australian made spring hammer. It was my first ever power hammer. So that's still sitting there. Um, my latest toy I got was a big iron worker. Um, so it's a big punch and shear machine. So it's got punches and I can cut angle iron, T-bar. It's got a guillotine on it. I've got 45 sets of dies, so I can punch round square holes, octagonal, nice. all sorts of things, and a notcher on the other end. So I'm so jealous, yeah. <laughs> oh, five years I was waiting, I've, I've been yeah. trying to find it. And I bought this thing off online again, and it was on wheels. I thought it was about half the size, I went to pick it up. I was like, um, I've got to get a bigger trailer, come back for that. <laughs> so it'll cut up to a 12 mil plate, inch and a, inch and a half round and square. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a decent, Decent bit of kit, but so let, let's talk knife shows, boys. Kyle, what knife shows do you always attend, and which ones do you want to attend? Uh, I attend every year the Little Rock, Arkansas knife show, and that one's in uh, uh, sometime around spring. Uh, normally, it's in February. It's like a couple weeks from now, and then I also go to the Blade Show in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in the middle of the year every year, and. That one's really good because there's just so much hype going on with it and so much traffic and everything because it's like the world's largest knife show. Other than that, like, I just would love to visit knife shows in other countries just to experience uh, what's going on in other countries, like I am right now in Australia. I've had the opportunity to go to Taiwan and China and now Australia, and I just want to go everywhere I can and experience the people and the culture and everything. Uh, Brazil is really high on my list because there's a lot of a lot of great makers and stuff down there and some cool shows and then you know 
something in Europe would also be really cool. Would you consider coming back for the Sydney Knife Show? Definitely. I would definitely consider coming back to the Sydney Knife Show. We'd like to see you here. Wayne, what shows are you doing this year? Just Iron Fest and the Sydney Knife Show, the only two I'm getting to this year. Probably the second Iron Fest if it happens. Uh, a lot of the um, shows, like the Queensland, the Brisbane Knife Show, conflicts with Ironfest, so I don't have time to make stuff for both. And the same, it's sort of two weeks before Ironfest, and then the Melbourne Knife Show is two weeks after it. And I've got a property out um, at Lithgow, out past Lithgow Way that I go to after after Ironfest, so I don't get time to make stuff for that. So yeah, um, right. So yeah, so at the moment I'd love to go to more. Um, I'd love to go over to the Perth as well. But yeah, this year just Sydney and Ironfest are the two the two I'm concentrating on. So good work. What's the hardest thing to source in knife making for you guys? Hardest thing to source. Uh, for me right now, the hardest thing to source is probably fossilized walrus ivory. Because um, a lot of my high-end daggers and stuff like require just the right piece that has like a little tiny core in it. And um, needs to be the right size to do one of these big daggers and stuff. And it can be really hard to find. Maybe not a couple years ago, but now it's it's just almost getting impossible to just find what I want instead of having to build the whole knife around the piece you know I w i'd rather get exactly what i want but definitely that one for sure yeah well that's fair enough it doesn't exactly grow on trees <laughs> no literally um what's your preferred grind uh my preferred grind is a flat grind with a convex edge so let's take a 10 inch buoy for instance i'll grind the the edge down to like 40, maybe 50 thousandths of an inch. That's one millimeter or about, I think. 40 thousand, one mil. Yeah. And then um, the, the spine will be somewhere around a quarter inch thick. So it's it's got a nice taper to it, and it'll have a distal taper all the way down the blade. And then I'll put it up on the slack belt. First, I'll put some masking tape on the spine, just a layer on the spine to protect the spine because I don't want to round that over. And then I'll put it up on the slack belt and grind that last 40 thousandths of an inch edge down to almost zero. And um, that's probably my preferred thing. I've done that on a couple daggers and buoys and hunters and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, nice. Yeah, sounds pretty cool. I guess we have to, we're gonna have to watch your videos and see how that's done, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's on there. <laughs> how about you, Wayne? Um, I've been enjoying playing around with um, a radius platen, a 36 inch radius platen. So I've been doing a lot of small knives, little um, skinning knives and general bush bush knives. And yeah, I'm finding, I'm loving that edge geometry from that, yeah, that 36 inch radius platen. It makes a beautiful cutting edge and seems to hold up just as well as a flat grind. So especially I've been playing with my D2 um, and been getting some really nice results with that. So yeah, I've also been, been stupid and playing around forging D2, which isn't the smartest thing to do. But <laughs> <laughs> But I do it because I can. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, mate. What do you find hard to source, Wayne? I don't know, really. Nothing. Nothing, because you've got it all. You just forged shit out of shit. Oh, so. oh, <laughs> it's all in the well, bush. Well, I, I use a lot of recycled stuff. So, you know, I've got piles of stuff that I can just source and modify through. and Suits you know, what you do. These days, it's, it's easy as compared to when I first started, where everything had to be ordered out of America. We didn't have any supply companies out here. So, yeah, I've got no complaints about sourcing things. <laughs> So what about your preferred handle material? For me, well, I generally stick with timber. Any sort? Australian timbers. I, I rarely, very rarely get exotic that you, stuff. None that's your favourite? I've got some really nice cooler barbell at the moment that's actually got some blacks and browns and golds yeah. and reds 
streaking through it. Cooler bar can be really nice. Um, yeah, yeah this, I've got, and I've got a whole whole burl of it that I managed to pick up, so I've got to get it slabbed up. And whether I keep a piece for a tabletop as well, I don't know. But we'll How about see. you, Carl? <laughs> My favorite material is also the, the one that I'm having a hard time sourcing probably is the fossilized walrus ivory. Yeah. It just polishes up so nice. But I also really, really love uh, the mother of pearls, like the white and black. I don't care what color mother of pearl. I love those. But a lot of times they don't really lend themselves real well to like the, the big stuff that I'm doing all the time unless you start putting tons of little mosaic pieces and stuff together. But even recently I did carbon fiber, a really high grade carbon fiber with no voids or anything that was actually from an airplane strut or some kind of structure inside the wing. Used that carbon fiber block for a stiletto handle that I did. And uh, I put deep flutes in it that spiraled around the handle and put 24 karat gold wire and stuff in there. And then uh, finished, finished it out to a, a really high grit and it just, it really blew me away. And I, I have never really been for natural, uh, man-made synthetic materials but that one uh may be swaying me a little bit so i'm going to be playing around with that more in the future because it came out great awesome yeah it's always fun when you find something new and and fascinating like that yeah yeah did we talk about your favorite tools in the shop we talked about the favorite tool what's your favorite tool my favorite tool is my favorite tool is probably a cross no, it's the, it's the hydraulic press. Yeah, it's got to be that. <laughs> it's got to be that because that enables me to do Damascus, and I really just love that, just squishing big billets of steel like all day long. I really like that. And the hydraulic press is great, and, and Dad and I built it together years and years ago, so it's it's extra close to me because of that. I get really sentimentally attached to stuff that like I've built or like you know friends have been involved with or anything like that, so that one's high on my list. Uh, Wayne, favorite tool? Oh, probably my latest hammer I've just designed, and I've just um, invented a new hammer style, like a dog's head. But imagine a, a flat face and a cross peen and a straight peen all in the one hammer that you're not having to flip over. That's my latest I hand tool. I cannot understand <laughs> how that could possibly work, so I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I well, can't imagine it. <laughs> yeah, it's an idea I got a few years ago, actually. During a, I did the introduction to bladesmithing with Bill Burke. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, when he's out here and. I had a forward-weighted hammer there, and we were throwing ideas around, and I modified this one to be sort of like that, but it didn't quite work the way I wanted to. And it's taken me, what, now, three, four years before I've actually got back to that design and started playing with it. And, um, yeah, so hand hammers, that's... I'm, I've always got a hammer in my hand, so that's probably my favourite tool. And, obviously, my the one that makes me money, though, is my Anyang, 75-kilo Anyang. That's, um, mm. that's the one I use the most. Um, yeah, that's the one I have the most fun with. So uh, now that you've seen barrel knives, obviously you, you see your next progression in knife making to be making barrel knives. But what do you think you need to improve most in your knife making? Oh, well, one of the things I'm trying to improve the most right now is actually my engraving. I consider that part of the knife making just because it's so integral to what I do now. But I do a lot of gold inlay and stuff like that. And I, I really love the look of it. But I really want to jump deep into full-blown scroll work and everything. And in order to engrave scroll work, you have to be able to draw it. And that's something that I'm really struggling with right now is just drawing the kind of scroll work that I want to put onto metal. I think if I think if I can get good enough at drawing it, that I'll be able to engrave it. But that's my biggest struggle currently. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I wonder if we can help out with that. We can put you in touch with... Um, what, give him a pencil? Uh, I was going to say, put him, in, <laughs> put him in touch with Danae. I reckon uh, 
I reckon Kyle and Danae should do a uh, collaboration piece. <laughs> that might be really cool. I saw some of her work, and it's uh, it's really, really amazing, mind-blowing, very diverse in the styles and stuff that she's doing. So, so there's going to be a Kyle Royer barrel knife, is there? Well, I just made that bit up. But anyway, that's all right. We <laughs> <laughs> never know. We could see one. It'd be a Kyle Royer barrel sword or something. <laughs> no, maybe not. Yeah. yeah no the barrel knives are super cool and i would love to make one someday uh just finding the right time and or customer to do it is uh is probably going to be my struggle where do you want to go wayne what do you want to do that you don't currently do uh i'm always looking for new ideas i actually did a course recently um it's actually like soldering pendant we actually did a dragon pendant around the stone using tin and melting tin onto it, so I'm figuring ways I can incorporate that into a into my knife handles. Maybe have a, a, a fine co copper coating on it and do this tin like scale effect over the top or something along those lines. But that's the idea that's running around in my head at the moment. So. That sounds super intriguing. I've got the pendant. I've got the pendant I made during this course here. I'll show it to you. It's um, it's pretty cool stuff. It's... Are you on Instagram, Wayne? Uh, I do have an account. I don't think I've ever posted anything. <laughs> well, no one's going to be able to see it if you don't no. put it up there, buddy. <laughs> And um, what piece of equipment do you guys most want or need? Who wants this one first? I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> the piece of equipment I want, big surprise, air hammer. <laughs> but it's not just it's not just my trip to Australia, but that has amplified the desire many, many fold. Uh, but yeah, I wanted like an Enyang, like uh, 165 pounder or so for a long time. So that's that's the next big piece of equipment on my list. Uh, but in order to do it, we're going to have to make some room in the shop. We're going to have to bring in more electricity because we currently have two like 100, 100 amp boxes completely maxed out. We're actually blowing breakers all the time just from what we have. So it's going to be some work to get that in there. Yeah, fair enough. Wayne? Yeah. There's always that added cost to these things, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my big want item, it's going to be a little way off yet, is I'd like a bigger press. So a 50, like a 50-ton press, especially with my axes. Yeah. Um, so I can set up multiple stages in the one. At the moment, I'm having to use one tool, use that one, then take that tool out, reheat the job, you do the next step. and So, yeah, that would be my next You need what they wish. have at Gransford's Brooks when I was there. Well, that would, that would be awesome. But, <laughs> They're um, making a, but yeah. even then, but I don't want to make the same axle all the time. So. No, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what that's set up to do. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know, I'm not in, well, who knows? I might be interested <clears> in mass producing them. I do them with tongs and hammers. So, but... That's, that's a long way down the track. So. <laughs> but one thing, um, Kev, have you got any more questions? No, I think I've tapped out on the old questions. Right. We didn't do some of the ones, we didn't do a lot of the ones about history and where they came from and stuff. But anyway, there's quite a few uh, podcasts around and um, maybe we can we can have them back when they come back to the Sydney show. We'll, we'll interview them again, eh? That'll work. Yeah, absolutely. That'll work. Extra incentive. <laughs> Extra incentive, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I, what I would like to discuss real quick is just knife-making T-shirts. I, I, I brought this up with you, Kev, a few weeks ago, you know. Um, I wear knife shirts everywhere exclusively. In fact, that's pretty much all I've got. Uh, the other shirts, I don't know where I put them. I wear knife shirts everywhere. So it all comes down exactly right. Wayne's wearing one here. And I'm just talking about how good it is when you wear them, how many people come up to you randomly and talk to you? And Kev's just uh, just stood up in front of the camera to show me his his knife shirt. She's wearing it as well. One of Morocco's. <laughs> yeah, right. 
My wife hates it because every time we fly, I wear a knife shirt and she's very conservatively dressed. And inevitably, I walk through with a big smile on my face, grinning like an idiot, and she gets searched. <laughs> at the um and so and and not only do i get grin like an idiot but the security guys go oh you make knives that's so cool i'd love to get into knife making and then some of the security ladies go do you make kitchen knives do you make good kitchen knives and you're like wow that it, there's always a conversation to be had but it was the funniest of funny when i went to new zealand for the funeral the other week flying back with my father. My father's got an OAM medal, which is a, a small medallion, about 10 mil or three eighths of an inch that's worn on the, the lapel. It's quite distinctive if you know what it is. And it's an Order of Australia medal. So we go through customs. I've got the knife shirt on. I've probably Perth knife show or something. One of the big good knife shirts. And he walks through behind me. They said to me, row eight, that's leave and out the doors, you're free to go. My dad's in, in row one. You've been randomly selected to be searched. I said to him, you've got the highest order of Australia medal pin on, and they're going to search you over me. Like, what does that tell you? <laughs> so knife shirts, they're awesome. <laughs> Open doors. They are. They do. But have you guys been approached in a knife shirt and, and had those conversations in a service station or somewhere? Uh, not a lot, really. No. Nah. No? Yeah, well, look at you. I must scare people off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had I've had a good number back in the states, uh, just grocery shopping or something, having a knife shirt on, going to like a tobacco shop. I went in there and the guy was like talking to me, and they kind of sell some custom knives, and we started up this conversation. He was like trying to get some for their display case, and and uh, yeah, that comes up every once in a while for sure. It actually uh, actually happened again. The reason I was thinking of it, it actually happened again when we stopped for a for a sandwich at lunch uh, the other day yep. guy came up out of the blue and you know saw the sh saw our shirt and listened to our conversation and jumped in and had a we had a chat to him at um at, at a at a restaurant that's yeah, pretty funny so I, I quite like the knife shirts from that perspective yeah it's super cool do you guys have a guest tip for the week is there some sort of a thing that you guys would like to share always try to be improving yourself yeah, we have that one all the time. No, you have a different one. You're going to make it into a uh, shirt. Go, oh, uh, make it flat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, make it flat. That's definitely the best tip I can give anybody. You make a flat space on a knife, then you can make the whole knife off of it, and it can be all perfect as long as you have one flat area to measure everything off of. You can use height gauges and scribes and whatever. Get a flat area. Make it flat. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be making a t-shirt of it one of these days, so don't everyone... Take that idea, it's mine. <laughs> Too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Oh, the only one that springs to mind is that um, two wrongs don't make a right, but three lefts do. <laughs> yep, you got me. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're there. Uh -huh. All right. Well, we're going to take these field. guys out and get them a feed. And, and uh... Yep. And we've got the symposium coming up this weekend. And then the masterclass the following week, which is going to be pretty awesome. And we'll talk about that on the next, next podcast. Sounds great, Kev. Thanks for catching up, guys. Thanks, for everyone, for listening. And many, many thanks for Kyle and Josh Royer for coming all the way from the States to do a podcast. 
and thanks very much to, to Wayne Saunders as well for dropping in totally unprepared and getting sat down with an earpiece in his head. Uh, all good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for having us out here. I mean, this is absolutely incredible just coming to your country and getting to see so many cool things and meet so many great people. Looking forward to the event coming up this weekend. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. All right. Excellent. Take care. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Bye.